0: Hi there, this
1: is Sarah, your host of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. And as you know, this is a podcast all about shedding our limiting labels and beliefs so that we can actually do more of what we are designed to do in this world. And in my opinion, that shine bright and do good work. So, our guest this week knows a lot about mindset and doing good work and business. So, I'm excited to talk to her. But before I formally bring her onto the show, let me give you a little bit of background about Eleanor. Eleanor Beaton is her name, and she is the founder of Safi Media, which is an education and coaching company for women entrepreneurs. Um, She also has the power plus presence plus position, the Triple P podcast, as I like to think of it. And she and her team are committed to advancing global gender equity through women's entrepreneurship. I just love that, you know, I just love both the focus on gender equity and women's entrepreneur. It's all like this big power bubble of what is possible. Um, but, you know, they're really on a mission to double the number of women entrepreneurs who scale past a million in revenue over the next now eight years by 2030. Years. So TikTok, tock, Eleanor. Um, But she has been published and quoted in publications such as The Globe and Mail, The Atlantic, CBC, Chatelaine, and others. So it's a long laundry list. We won't go into them. But what really stands out to me from the background research I did on Eleanor and really intrigued me is her insights and wisdom about women leaders in general, but then also what it's like to go after those seemingly impossible goals what happens in our head our mindsets um, what gets us going but blocks us Um, also how to redefine our relationships with money and time those big impossible goals and then actually scaling for impact so that we're not creating a business or a life that is a drudge and we we're no longer excited about living. So with all of that as a prelude, let's welcome our guest, Eleanor Beaton. Hi, Eleanor.
2: Hello, Sarah. It's so wonderful to be here with you and your incredible audience. Thanks. Is there anything you want to add to your bio before we dive in? You know what? Um, What I didn't add and what I probably should have is that I am a pretty decent juggler I am a mother to two boys, 11 and 15, and um, an avid weightlifter.
1: Okay, so that puts a little bit of the other things in context.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's a lot to... Juggle. I thought at first you said juggler. I'm seeing you with, you know, bowling pins doing the juggler. That's
2: true. Things. I legit, ju- I, I can legit juggle. My grandmother was a fantastic juggler and she taught me. And it's one of these sort of enduring skills where it comes out every party, every party, Sarah, invite me over. You may see. I like it. I do. I like that. You, you're kind of like a
1: multi-talented kid. <laughs> it would be fun to have around. Okay. Were you the kid when your parents came home? They said, Were you hanging out with Eleanor? Did you guys get in trouble today? What'd you get up to?
2: Were you the mischief maker? You know what? No, this this mischief maker was completely buried in me until um, I sort of had my great coming of age in my 20s. But no, I was a perfectionist. I was the studious um, kind of nerdy person. The reason I know how to juggle is because my grandmother took the time to teach me And I practiced and practiced and practiced every day until I could do sort of fountain style juggling with three tennis balls. So that's what I was like, although I've become much more of a troublemaker as I have um, grown into, you know, becoming an adult woman. Say grow into your. Empressness, your fullness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like it. Well, the
1: one thing I do like to start asking our guests is if there is something that you do daily or on a regular basis that really keeps you focused on what you're all about, Eleanor.
2: Mm. So I have a, a practice that I do every morning where I sit down and I think about some of the, you know, the, the big things that I want to accomplish. And Rather than making a to-do list, um, I sit down and ask myself who I need to become to be the woman capable of having the things that I want. And I take about 10 minutes just to get centered around that and think about who I need to become. And that helps me to be sort of constantly on this uh, journey of becoming and of thinking about the essential qualities that I want to cultivate within myself um, in order to accomplish big goals. And that has been a huge uh, shift for me in terms of, you know, being able to continue to pursue big goals and have ambition without burning out. So, who am I becoming versus what do I need to do? That's a practice that has been quite sacred and important.
1: So, becoming—you use the word like the characteristics, right? What are the components? I'm just trying to think if someone were to sit yeah. down and do this, would they be thinking, "Well, who am I becoming? Am I becoming a better mom, or I becoming mm-hmm. like what types of things might show up on a list? Not necessarily they have well, to." Well, I'll give might you an up.
2: example. Yeah, let me give you a very practical example. So, right now. Um, one outcome or one thing that I have is this thing that I just love to be able to do. Because I see my mission, you know, it's about advancing gender equity. And the mission is bigger than that because really what I truly want to do is to advance a model of economic growth that nourishes the planet, one woman owned business at a time. So I'm very passionate about women entrepreneurs for a very specific reason, because I think that we can become an incredible case study proof point community that shows, look, we can nourish the planet and take care of the planet while we, you know, grow economies and provide employment and generate value and all this kind of thing. So when we talk about doubling the number of female founders who scale past a million, that's because we need proof points. Because really, most people, I think world leaders and so on, don't actually believe that that this is possible yet, because we haven't seen tons of examples of it. But I talk to female founders every day who have sustainable scaling at the core. Like, you know what, it's not money at any cost. It's growing revenue in a way that nourishes the people who work with me and for me, um, that nourishes my family, my well-being, and, and through that, the environment as well, right? So. My goal is also to be a proof point. So something I am really looking to do is to create a company that can sustainably generate 20 million in annual revenues with a 30% profit margin. (laughs) Okay, so that's something I think about. And rather than spending that sacred time in the morning asking myself what I could do, what I ask myself is, who do I need to become in order to be a woman who is capable of having a company that sustainably scales to 20 million a year with a 30% profit margin and 30% of my time is open, unscheduled, and free. And so very specifically, you know, as I asked myself, I started to understand that I, I needed to become a woman who was truly capable of deeply trusting other people because there's no way I could do it on my own you know and so I started to really cultivate the characteristic of deep trust within myself first starting with my ability to deeply trust myself and then by extension working on deeply trusting others and that's been one of the most profound kind of transformations that I've gone through as an entrepreneurial leader you know like right so there's a lot of places to go, but that's an, a very specific, tangible example. That is very
1: specific. I mean, and it's tied to your
2: metrics, right? Yeah. But
1: but it really, for me, it's all about that self-start, right? It does. It's not external. It starts with who do I need to become, right? Well, if I can't trust, using your example, myself, if I can't be my own self-leader and trust that I will take care of myself or business, whatever's on the table, right? then I certainly cannot extend that to others, not genuinely extend it to others, right?
2: No, and it's interesting because, you know, I can remember reaching this uh, kind of plateau in my business and I was, I'd accomplished what I wanted to, like a goals some goals that I had. I needed to think about what was next, but I was just kind of plateauing a little bit. I couldn't, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. And I realized actually that, I did know, like I had some whispers of of this vision of of where I wanted to take things next, but I hadn't cultivated the trust to listen. So I kept trying to listen to other people, trying to listen to other people's insights, reading tons of books and seeing what those authors thought all of which are not bad things but i was using them you know in a way i was sort of using them against myself in a way that the first thing i needed to do was to develop this trust in, in in myself you know um we talk a lot about mindset and the mindset of scaling and i think that you know in order to sustainably scale you must learn how to trust yourself i didn't realize i kept looking for different tactics you know um, there was an initial level of scaling where the biggest thing I needed to do was to be willing. It was willingness to put myself out there, you know? Um, and then I became really great at that. And it wasn't that anymore. It was about the willingness to trust. So I think, yeah, I mean, we could, there's so much to say on this topic of that, that lead indicator or that first mover, but I, I completely agree with you. It it for me has always been that internal first mover, um, and the, the irony is that even, you know, I, I knew that, but I didn't trust it. Now I do.
1: There is that distinction between knowing something like knowledge type knowing and actually knowing it, like embodying the knowledge going, Mm-mm, this is not right for me. It might be right for you, but it is not right for me and trusting it. And one of the biggest teachers of that is ignoring it. And then like even just a short period going, you know, I kind of knew that wasn't for me. I don't know why I tried to do it. Maybe because everybody else said that's the next step. And then you get you get to a point you're thinking, hmm, I don't think so. But that is a trusting piece. It doesn't mean you know everything. It just means that you trust that nugget of truth and start forward on that. So talk a little bit about, um, how your own, I, I, you know, I was listening to an interview with you and I love that you use this word, fierce independence. Mm. Um, but you indicated that, that your fierce independence with money actually affected and influenced, um, your business experience. And I don't know if you remember that, but there was something that you talked about that having that since a really young age, that really powered you. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I think a lot of our listeners could resonate with that.
2: Yes. So, um, you know, I grew up, we're an immigrant, I I live in Canada. Uh, I'm an immigrant, we moved here when I was a kid. And so my mom, I'm biracial, my mom is a black woman from the Fiji Islands. My father was Welsh and uh, he, you know, went down to Fiji, was a rugby player. Rugby is like hockey in Canada, and I guess like hockey and baseball and basketball and football (laughs) in the U.S. So great sport. That's where he met my mom. My mom was the main breadwinner at the time. She was a teacher. She was a very independent woman. They get married, move back to the United Kingdom, and I'm born, and then they move to Canada where my dad gets a job as an economics professor at a university in the town where I still live. So uh, growing up, my mom, now she's in a completely different culture. Her credentials as a teacher were not at the time recognized by the Canadian government. So there was a subtle shift in that relationship and my dad became the sole breadwinner in our family. And they had a great relationship in many ways but my mom, it created this economic imbalance in our home. And I can remember one day, they'd had an argument about something related to money. And my mom is driving me to basketball. She's gripping the steering wheel, like her knuckles are white and, her, and she has dark skin. So that's how hard she was gripping the steering wheel. And she said to me, you know, Eleanor, money is power. Always make your own. And I never forgot that. Because I could see that dynamic and I never wanted um, to not be able to have the power to make my own decisions, no matter how great of a partner I had. And, you know, it created in me a fierce determination and a fierce conviction. And it's so interesting because years later, I was a business journalist and I can remember it was a great education, by the way. And I can remember interviewing this really, really successful business leader about how he. Um, how he decided which companies to invest in, and he said the most important thing he looked for was a sense of fire in the belly. So fire in the belly, which is so key, you know, for entrepreneurs, um, gender equity when it comes to finance, these were two huge pillars that were set, lay down in my family of origin that have really been a fuel, I think, um, in my entire career.
1: And that kind of answered one of my questions that I was going to ask you, which is how you came upon having this mission and vision for your company. It makes perfect sense. It's interesting though, when you talk about your father being Welsh and your mom being Fijian, you say that is that correct, Fijian. I just think both of those cultures are steeped in um actually they both have deep roots in women's power right? The Welsh culture, all of that, there's the spiritual power. So I just think how wonderful that must have been for you having that, whether it was acknowledged or not when you were a little girl, but just that kind of magic vibe around you. Um, And maybe, maybe you didn't, but I'm just going both of those cultures have that, you know, very powerful. Oh,
2: a hundred percent, you know, and I can, and I, you know, look back, I, I, there were so many um, strong women, you know, in my family and who in their subtle ways, I mean, we didn't talk about feminism at all, you know, growing up, it wasn't, but it was this silent undercurrent that was there regardless, um, that, that really did, you know, really did play a big role. And, and I, you know, in, I took what was implicit and pursued it in a more explicit way, not explicit, because like swearing Swearing and sex, but more explicit, you know, in terms of just being very visible. And and it was a it was a very visible leader, you know, driving me in my career.
1: Well, and it's interesting to think about how that filters down into other areas of our life. Right. That not wanting to be diminished or um, silenced right? And money is power, at least in our culture, it's power, and we have different relationships with it. Um, Can you talk about how our thinking about money or relationship with money either helps or hinders us as
2: entrepreneurs? Absolutely. You know, I've had a, I had a big sea change about, uh, money. This was so interesting. I can remember when I first hit a million in revenue in my business and it was, it had, I'm a a former athlete, still current athlete. Like I still compete, play sports and all of this. And I, so I'm, I have always been, um, comfortable playing finite games or and competing in finite games when there's a clear beginning and there's parameters, there's a field of play. And so I set up my business that way, you know? And so I was like, I just, so I wanted to hit my first million in revenue revenue. And um, that was exciting. And what was so fascinating, and I thought that I loved money and was a money person. But the interesting thing is once I accomplished that, and for me, like uh, we grow according to what I call a jewel business model. So a jewel business model is 30% uh, top line revenue growth until such time as the founder wants to accelerate or decelerate. Um, 30% profit margin, 30% open time. And this I find really constructing our business in a way that has these parameters really um, allowed me to scale it and create something that I enjoyed and that provided, you know. So I get to that place and then I start to feel my ambition wash right out of me. Like I didn't have it anymore. And it was really, I'd I'd accomplished what I wanted to accomplish and realized that money didn't actually motivate me as much as I thought it did. (laughs) You know, impact did. But I took a step back and I started thinking about the impact of money. And I was so confused. I was like, this is so interesting. I could, there's all these things I could do to go out and make more money, but I don't really feel like doing it. I could do a few more webinars. I could, I could do a little bit more PR. I could, you know, maybe do Instagram lives a little bit more, but I just don't want to. Um, And that was a really powerful realization. And, And so I started to take a look at the impact of money. And the role of money and relationship with money. And that's when I really came across the work of Lynn Twist and her book, The Soul of Money. And and in The Soul of Money, she talks about this concept of sufficiency and that the opposite of scarcity isn't abundance. The opposite of scarcity is sufficiency. And sufficiency means more than enough. So in the book, she argues that our culture is sort of dominated by a scarcity approach, which is there's never enough, more is better, and that's just the way that it is. And when I transformed my relationship with money to a place of sufficiency and realized, actually, I do have more than enough. There is a, you know, I'm very privileged to be in that situation. I have more than enough time, more than enough money, more than enough resources. Then I was actually really able To make space for the true vision and mission of my company to emerge, you know, that's when I really started to be able to build a company that is completely reverse engineered from our larger vision and mission, rather than a cash machine. Because that's what I was looking to build before, which was a cash machine, which is typically how we look at business. Like, how can we minimize the inputs to generate maximum output? And the output is typically revenue and revenue is centered. And if anything, you know, in the last three years or two years in our culture has taught us that be mindful of what we center. And so now revenue is a critical part of an ecosystem, but I really it's not the central part. It's just one part of an ecosystem that is really generated to create and fulfill the vision that myself and now my colleagues and team members, you know, at Safi have together.
1: So is your center the mission now is your work around the mission or what would you say when, when you say it's now center?
2: Yeah. So centered on the vision, which is to advance a model of economic growth that nourishes the planet. One woman owned business at a time. Um, the mission to double the number of female founders who sustainably scale past a million. And it's interesting because I always had that as a mission. And I was like, why is this so important to me? But I just could not get it out of my head. I was like, it's this, it's this, it's this. And now I know it's because that is what would allow us to have f- proof points that there's a different way to succeed in business. There is another model of growth that actually puts people first and communities first and well-being first. And doesn't mean you have to sacrifice income or growth, you know? So, yeah. So I think actually
1: talking a little more about that would be good because you talked about like women being in a position to do this. Is that because of our, why is that? Let me not guess what it's because of. You tell me what it's because of.
2: Oh, gosh, that's a million dollar question. I don't really know why that is i think we're incredibly relational i don't know i don't know why we are the ones but i just have a deep feeling that we are you know and that you know when you think about it for for many many years now hundreds of years uh, most of the rules of business have been written by men um and that's not necessarily a criticism it is what it is it's it's how it's how our world was structured and and now that is starting to change But what I started to see is that very often what we were doing was pursuing a model of growth that we didn't create. So we didn't actually have agency in the system itself. Let me give you an example of this. So I sit on the board of a venture capital organization and am very um, interested and intrigued at how women-owned businesses get funded. And what we see again and again is that just around 2% of all venture capital goes to fund women-owned businesses. The vast majority goes to fund businesses that are started by men. And to be very clear, I do not have any problem (laughs) with businesses that are started by men. I'm a mom to two boys. I have a husband, a dad, a brother, like all of this. But um, clearly there's an imbalance here. And what's so interesting, even though we know that companies that are led by women, um, shareholders often receive higher returns on equity, What we also know is that when women go in front of funders, the way that we talk about is we will say, I'm building this business, and here's the problem it's solving. Here's the the people it's going to impact and influence. We start immediately at the level of the people and the problem. And our message falls on ears that are more comfortable hearing this. Here's a business that I'm founding. This is a $500 billion market opportunity, $500 billion market. And we're confident that within the next five years, our company can hit a valuation of a billion dollars. In one of these examples, revenue is centered. In another one of these examples, people are centered. And um, to me, that shows the prioritization that's happening and that we can learn a lot from each other. So what's happened is that women are taught you need to go and pitch like this, you know? And I'm saying, no, actually, we don't. You need to understand how to listen to an alternate form of value creation, you know? So there's all this, you know, when you start to look at the different pieces of evidence, what we start to see is how, for whatever reason, women entrepreneurs are already bringing this to the table. And unfortunately, we're often conditioned or mentored out of communicating that way and what i'm saying is no i think we need to celebrate and reorient ourselves to listen and learn from what female founders are doing naturally that's the natural way that they will present um, unless it's mentored out of us (laughs)
1: <laughs> do do female founders delay in asking for um, money longer than men would in it like as they're creating something or is that just a factor of volume of women and men currently in the space.
2: I think it's a a number of different um, factors. So it can sometimes be lack of access to networks. So I'll give you an example. I was just recently talking to a client who has a very excellent uh, technical solution, um, very, in my opinion, fundable. And um, I was saying, uh, you know, talking to them about uh, you need to this is an incredible opportunity. Um, I think you need funding, you need money. To be able to build the team that you need to make sure that this is the impact that it can have. And um, they didn't know who they didn't they didn't know who to talk to. And that was a huge issue. They talked to one person who was not particularly helpful. Um, so very often we know that women don't have access to the networks that we need, and getting capital very much is all about who you know. So that's absolutely one part of it. Um, you know, that that I think is key.
1: That's interesting example. I recently interviewed a gal on the podcast and it was an after you know, like after conversation never came up that she had actually created something and patented it out. You know, she'd been working on it like 10 years. I said, so what are you doing with it? Like it's, it's out there. She's got a prototype. I said, you built a prototype and she goes, yeah. And she's told me where it was and how it was being used. I said, may I ask if it's not too invasive, how much did that prototype cost? And she goes, I think it cost two, I thought she was gonna talk 20,000 minimum, right, for one. She goes, it was $2,000. I said, are you kidding me? I said, that's a life-changing tool. I said, that's a pittance. I said, what would it be like for you if you could have a thousand of those out quickly to the folks who are disabled and can't stand up? That would, she goes, oh, I don't know if I could do that. And I said, listen, I worked in the nonprofit sector for years. I said that's a totally fundable idea, and I that yes. you're thinking small. You know? Yes,
2: and this is and this is the thing. So she had asked that conversation with you. Could change the face of the planet, you know, and the, and it absolutely this is the could. like I. It absolutely could. And, and that this is where these relationships, these stories, these conversations, and the ability to, for you to listen to her sharing her idea, where she probably was not saying, I have something, I have a billion dollar business.
0: You You know, and what she said
2: was, no, I have this thing that can really help people. Um, You know, and I think, That, you know, when you start to look at opportunity like that, the people it can impact and understand that the money is secondary, it's okay for the money to be secondary, just like it's also okay for people to say this is a billion dollar business. But what I'm saying is both work. But when you center revenue, that becomes the only thing that matters. And I'm much more interested in, in centering people. And I think many female founders are as well. And that's the change I'm so passionate about creating.
1: I'm with you there. Well, it's that whole thing of like, that was such a limiting belief she had. So for me, that's my passion, right? Like, why are we accepting this as true? We don't know that it's true. Yes. So I said, who's your board of directors? Well, it's really small. I I don't care. Can you pull them together for a meeting? Let's just have a conversation. So we did that. And I said, what is the real dream here? What if, if you didn't have to deal with money and you could do, where would this be? if you could have it change the live shows, oh, it'd be international and it'd be in every country and throughout the US. And I said, all right, is that doable? And she said, I actually think it is. And I said, well, let's map it out. Right. So we just did a quick, we're going to meet again in April. And just, I brought in a storyteller guy, a video dude. And I said, let's just do some pro bono for these guys. Because, uh, you know, it's like, if you're in your own head, but when people are external, yeah. you're going, let's just pull it out a little so you can talk about it. Who are the people you know who can help you get this out there? They had a list, right? They just never thought it was possible. So I'm so excited because I know this. Once it gets out and one person looks at it, they're going, oh, I'm going to back this. This really could be a game yeah. changer for people and not just how she envisioned it. I'm thinking, no, it's bigger than that. This is a prototype. Other people are going to come and say, we could use it this way, right? Different industry. So anyway, it's exciting. And um, so to know that my gut instinct was at least in the right direction with her was great.
2: Um, But you know, I, and what I see, I hear so many things in that example that I just, that, that are so personally exciting to me. Like one is this idea of being open to the possibility that what's in store for you is much greater than what you're capable of seeing, you know. So that's the thing number one. And thing number two, I remember having a client who um, was from a First Nations community, and she said that in their community there was a an expression which is that change happens in the spaces between people you know, and it's this idea. And, and that to me comes about trust, the ability to have a relationship, to, to create relationship with somebody, to to trust them enough to share what you're working on and how important it is. And to trust them enough to when you said, let's do a meeting, let me call like huge amount of trust. If somebody who's just interviewed for you for a podcast, so it's a level, a certain level of a relationship says, I think you should pull your board together. And I think we should have a conversation and the willingness to trust, to be vulnerable, to receive that and the growth and change that happens through that. I mean, that to me, you know, when we talk about who's the woman capable of having a company in her case that impacts hundreds of millions of people around the world that generates huge that generates employment and revenue you know like all of it and riches for her hey if she she can have a bentley maybe you know like all of that um you know and i think about like it's who is the woman who's capable of having those things she's capable of sharing what she's working on she's capable of of having relationships with people she's capable of taking the seed of hope that somebody else plants in her and Betting on herself. I mean, that to me, like I found again and again, just in my my journey, and I know you do this with people every day. So you're like, "Yep, I yep, do it yep, for yep. myself."
1: I, I find yeah. people who help me do it because you know how you get stuck in your head, and someone goes, "You're making this harder than it needs to." Be. <laughs> I know.
2: Every day, Sarah. Every day. No.
1: <sighs> no, but that is exciting. So I, I, am I, I guess I'd share that just because. I do believe in what you're doing and the power of it um, and the exponential power of it, right? Because once we see models that work and we go, I could do that. That could be me, right? It's not so out of the realm of possibility. Mm. And I, and I think I don't want to make a blanket statement, but I know that the women leaders I work with are very heart centered. So yeah, they make really tough decisions and. Um, they make them to keep their businesses, whether they're nonprofits or for profits, they make them to keep the businesses alive and working. But they also consider the people who have to show up in those businesses because they want them to also have a good life. It isn't like just me. No. And the rest yeah, of you exactly. too bad for you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is an established model of growth <laughs> that I want no part of.
1: Okay. <laughs> you know? I've gotten in trouble <laughs> For that in the past, I know, like, sure. hey you got to get those metrics up for those folks i'm going mm, the cost to them right now would be psychically terrible and you'll lose yes. them just let's back off yeah. here um,
2: that's it, right yeah it didn't
1: bode well for me <laughs> 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 but if it had i wouldn't yeah. be here so i'm okay with that um exactly. so what is the role of our emotions In our goal setting, do you, is there a role that we either overplay
2: or understate in that? You know, I, I have always found that my emotions around something have been a gateway to a deeper level of understanding that I need in order to be able to uh, accomplish the goal. So I really see emotion as, um, powerful information. And I'll give you a very, again, a really specific example of this. So a personal example. So I can remember, um, that I, uh, somebody was completing their work in one of our programs and, um, I, could, I was looking at her business and I just really felt that um, she needed to take a next step in this other, that she needed to. I, I, could, I just saw a tremendous opportunity to help her in the next sort of phase. So we sort of support our clients along a life cycle. Um, there's three stages to that life cycle of growth. People come on at any time, they top off at any time, but I really felt she needed to do that next life cycle. And she did not feel she needed to do the next life cycle. And she has agency. And is, and I was very mad <laughs> in my, in my, in my heart of hearts. Of course, I would never have expressed this to her, but, and I was intellectually, I was saying to myself, girl, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you know I mean? like, intellectually, I knew this was ridiculous. I believed that she at 100, it was not right because she didn't feel it was right. So that was it. But I was very mad that was an emotion, you know, I had my goal, and that this was an emotion that I was feeling, you know, and so I, as a coach, I, what I learned was to take that emotion, to process it and feel it, and then to ask myself, what was the thought that was causing, you know, the emotion, and that was effective, like 75% of the way, but there's still something deeper than that, And what I had to learn how to do was to do the work that we just, you know, to recognize the emotion, to feel the emotion, to ask myself the thoughts, and then to try to change the thoughts, you know, which is often what we do. But I just felt that there was something more, and I had to understand the emotion more. And so here's what I learned to do with with the help of a very powerful mentor. I, I felt the emotion. And I asked myself, who's saying this? Who's feeling this and who's saying this? And I realized it was immediately, like I asked myself that. And again, this was sort of guided work. And it was, um, it was like a young version. It was like a, a 10-year-old version of Eleanor who um, got rejected. She, she moved to a new school. She got kind of rejected by a couple of people. And she felt incredibly lonely and less than and I realized that that little girl that was still in the driver's seat of certain of my experiences, and the more I tried to change my thoughts to choose more useful thoughts, it was helpful to a degree, but she was still there, and I had to be able to talk to her and say, listen, my friend, you're totally, I welcome you, and your energy, and your dreams on this journey, and you don't need to run my business. That's not your job. You don't have to do that, honey. I've got that. I want you with me. I want you involved. Um, You are welcome here, and I can handle some of these tougher parts. So I had to, you know, emotion for me. um, I sort of, you know, if I kind of go through what I know how to do as a coach doing thought work, but then I also have learned how to take it deeper to really understand how can I grow in a way that doesn't leave important parts of me behind. And so that to me is the the role of emotion and goal setting. It, It signals to me who might be feeling left out, what part of me might be feeling left out of this next evolution. And I had to learn how to do this because those parts, I didn't know who they were. I didn't even know how to do what I just shared with you. And I would keep, you know, and I, and I just kept putting the brakes up, you know, I would grow and these kinds of, you know, this fear of abandonment would get bigger. And I kept trying to, I kept trying to do thought work out of it. And it had, it didn't have last, it didn't have the transformational impact that I actually needed. I think thought work is incredibly powerful and important, by the way, you know, I am a coach Um, But I also knew I I recognized there was something else, another way that I had to work with my emotions to really get the transformation that they were trying to signal to me that I needed. That has been my experience with emotion and goal setting.
1: It's interesting because I know when folks set goals and one of the gals I'm working with is she goes, you know, this is what I really want to do. But then I start blah, blah, blah. Right. The internal head trash goes off on her. And that was one of our conversations says, tell me how, you know, that's true. Where, you know, yeah. and she goes, I, I don't know that's true. I'm just worried that it might be true. And I said, okay, but where's that come from? Like, yeah. and, and just, I said, well, maybe, maybe <laughs> over the next week or two, try to listen and be nice to, the, don't fix it. Just be nice to that person having those thoughts and feelings, but keep moving forward. Right. Just nurture them because, and I know, and I haven't done the same work you've done, but I know consciously when I'm stuck with that and I can feel it's like it's just that dis ease, right? I'm unsteady about something and it's not, it doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't link to anything in my current environment or something that's going on. I'm thinking, this is deeper. You know, can you just be kind to little Sarah, right? Just give her a break.
2: Totally. I mean, look at this. This is little Eleanor. And I have a picture of her. So if you're listening to the show, I'm holding up a, I'm a four years old and holding my pet chicken Polly. <laughs> Poor Polly is probably like, I can't breathe. But you know, like I have her there as a visual reminder to exactly what you're talking about, you know, which is this, this idea of, to me, sustainable growth like going after big goals the thing that makes us tired of pursuing big goals is pursuing them for the wrong reasons or pursuing them in a way that requires we leave pieces of ourselves behind talk a
1: little more about that eleanor especially you know after 2 years and who knows how much longer of up and down with covid and health and freedom uh, and not that fatigue and people are tired already so talk about that a bit
2: well you know i'll I'll give you an example so that that sort of um you know what i was ta- what, what I was sharing with you that fear of abandonment and of betrayal it sounds incredibly dramatic, and people experience it every day. And so what I had, what you can do and what I had certainly done was try to intellectualize my way out of it, try to talk my way out of it, try to tell myself, that's an interesting thought. Let's choose a different one, you know, like all of this. (laughs) And every time, and I started to use my own skill against myself because I wasn't doing what you were saying, which was who's saying that, you know, or where does that come from? Because very often there is a part of who we are, you know, so if I had pursued that goal, you know, if, if I'd pursued the goal um, without doing the work to really understand who is it who's afraid and can I make space for her in this vehicle? And can I make sure that she knows that she's welcome so that I am able to grow with wholeness? Because if I don't do that, what happens is I'm ba- she's basically going to hang on behind. You know, it's like she's going to tie herself to the car and I'm going to drag her. And eventually what happens as you start to train yourself to leave parts of who you are, you know, parts of who you are behind, you just have, your vehicle is trailing like you at two, at three, at four, at five. You're just trailing people behind you. It's heavy. It slows you down and it's cruel. And so, you know, it's cruel. Yep. It's cruel because they, every single of those versions is a beautiful creature who is capable of so much, you know, and if you just make a place for them and talk to them, you know, and it sounds... I know there's people who potentially are listening are like she's saying to talk to your past versions of you. And I'm, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm saying it because um, that to me is wholeness that everybody who I am, all the versions of myself, they're all welcome. There's a place for every single one of them. And together we get to accomplish great things. Um, I did not know how to do that. And so accomplishing goals would require that I would tell the parts of myself that felt betrayal, shut up, forget about you. You're crazy. Don't worry about that. And they didn't feel heard, you know, and so they show up in other ways. They show up in looking for betrayals. They show up in, you know, wondering, is this person going to, you know, is this, is this, can I trust this person? You know, when, when I make room for them, I'm capable of so much more. And
1: hence back to your trust work in the very beginning of our conversation, yeah, right? Totally. It's It's, assault, it's not right? a mistake that we have, what we have in our lives to kind of help us develop, I, in my opinion, to become more spiritually whole and connected to all of our parts. And it's funny, I have, a, um, you know, not the traditional wedding pictures. We have a picture of each of us at like seven, I think we're about six or seven school pictures, right? Kindergarten, first grade, in a frame. And then we just had friends sign around it. But my husband, he said, how do you not get mad about stuff? I said, you know what I always do is I remember who I'm talking to is that little boy in that picture. It's not the man who's upset about something in front of me. It's that little boy. And I'm not going to say something until I know how this little girl is feeling about it, Um, even as an adult, because you can hurt somebody, right? And lash out. but, you know, we always talk, but there's just that mental reset, like at heart, we are all of these pieces of us um, yeah. and they are precious and it doesn't take much to hurt a piece of it and then have to help rebuild it. And that was a gruesome picture of leaving parts behind you. I mean, I could mm-hmm. tell it's visceral, right? When yeah. we say you don't matter, so hop on in the back or hop out and I'm just dragging you Um Because it helps. We just feel better when we get to bring those pieces in. And I am by no means done with this work. It does not. Oh, gosh, no. It doesn't end. Hey, so um, I could talk to you forever. However, I do have two questions related to business. And that is the difference between incremental and exponential thinking and how that helps or hinders our business growth.
2: Mm. Well, you know, what's been so fascinating is so much of this conversation has centered out around the idea that very often we're much, we're capable of much more than we realize. And so when I think about exponential thinking, there's this great, um, there's a great question that Peter Thiel, um, who is a, a, a big successful sort of Silicon Valley investor, don't love his politics, but he's a genius. Um, he's a genius. And he's a great question. And the question is, what would have to be true if you were to accomplish your 10-year goals in six months? There's a really powerful question because it allows you at first, if you ask yourself this, you'll start, the first thing you'll start to think is all the reasons why it can't happen. But then if you just sit with that discomfort, you sit with the frustration of having to think through this, you start to think really, really creatively you know and i always think about that as a difference when it comes to exponential thinking this is when you start to you start to make significant changes in your approach very often exponential thinking means that you are rather than doing 50,000 things you are looking for the one or two levers that create the biggest impact and it allows you to begin to focus and focus of course is what drives bigger bigger and bigger results so That's the real difference. And I think that that's so key. We're always looking for that. I, in my business, I know that my growth has typically been very much related to cutting, focusing, choosing, discerning, deciding. You know, scale is not, people think that scale is about addition, scale is about subtraction and multiplication. That's the exponential growth. It's about eliminating things that don't serve, just like we prune. Um, apple trees in order to create more fruit. That's the key to exponential growth is refining and discerning, you know? And so that's huge, 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 huge in business. It's not often the way that people want to grow because they just want to keep building like one of those houses, like in a Dr. Seuss book where there's this and this and this and this, and it's a hot mess. It's toppling over. It's held together, you know, with chicken wire (laughs) and dental floss, um, but yeah, I really, I really see that as a huge, I'm giving you lots of, lots you are of such a visual <laughs>
1: talker. I love it. I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I have all these visions coming in my head when you talk, I'm thinking, yeah, stay, stay focused, Sarah, no stay rabbit focused. trails here. Stay so
2: focused. I just started thinking about yeah.
1: dental floss,
2: right? <laughs> but but, but that is that work, pruning right? Yeah.
1: yeah. Always. You know, what's Always. so interesting about, you know, when you said that. I'll be teaching a strategic planning class, right? And to the university students coming up in April. And I do this in the spring for them in their nonprofit excellence um, week. So, but I, you know, and having done so many strategic plans, it's always, we're gonna do all of this. And then with these are the things, and I'm thinking, I'm gonna ask that question. Okay, that's really great when you think about this, but if you could only do one thing and you had to do it, not in five years, but in six months, what would you really do? You know, yeah. because that does, you know, if someone asked me that, which you just did. I'm, I'm taking that to heart in the business. It'll be one of the questions I ask in our team meeting next week. Hey, if we were going to do all this stuff that we, we think we'll do in the next two years, but we're going to do it right now in the next six months, what do we need to do? You know, yeah. what needs to happen? What gets rid of, what do we need to add on? You know, like in terms of resources, all of that, mm-hmm. and then not be afraid of the answer. Cause that's the other piece. It's like, Oh be, yes. Be
2: Incredible courage. Be willing. Be willing because, you know, that's another, I can remember a a mentor. This was a um, a very, very impactful, wise, rich business leader said, um, you know, it's really important that you stay willing to risk a piece of what you've built over and over and over in order to create something that, that you know just continues to move you towards your vision and I, I i think about that you know the willingness to risk um you know it's so key yes and
1: once you get to that i have enough and that was a quote i heard i believe it was attributed also to warren buffett it's like I, or i'm not sure who it was so i don't want to attribute it to anybody specific but it really impacted me it's like some guy was telling. i know the richest man in the room and the guy says no i am <laughs> well how you don't have more money he says oh I have enough for everything I want. And you know what the great thing is, is I know it. So, and that was, it's a mindset thing. Like you don't have to have a certain, you have to have enough or your sufficiency model, right? It's like, I don't have to panic and I can risk these other things and try these other things as a result. Yes, exactly. Eleanor, you are a gem. And I love the fact that you talked about a jewel model. And now I can say you're a gem. You've got me on the roll (laughs) for the day. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. But, you know, I also know people are going to say, okay, I got to know more about Eleanor. So what are the best places for people to connect with you? And if someone's just thinking about this, where would you have them start on their journey?
2: Mm. So I think a, a good place to start on the journey would be the Power Presence Position podcast. Um, this is where I have interviews. I do We do podcast documentaries and have sort of, a, you know, straight up, I would say kind of close to training sessions, people tell me it's like an MBA. It's like a, it's like a fun MBA. So that's the, that's a great place to start. I love to get to know and kind of hear how people think and how they approach things. So that's a great resource. Um, and then you can go to eleanorbeaton.com. And there you'll be able to see places where you can sign up for a free course or a resource. Um, we don't do a ton on social media anymore. I am a long form content person, um, so you've probably heard some of that today. <laughs> I like to take my time and really walk through things and so um, a lot of the insights um, and sort of helpful stuff that I have comes via a newsletter so those are the two places and I just so appreciate this conversation um, and and the shared learning that we've had here and what I have been able to learn from you as a guest on your podcast. I, I really appreciate it, Sarah.
1: Well, and I would say the reverse for me. I mean, I was really excited to get to talk to you because I know your brain is just one of those great brains um, and you have so much to share. And I'm most excited for the listeners who are going to go, whoa, especially the ones who don't know you. They're going to go who is this woman? I need to know more. And I'm going to grow because I know. So that's what I'm hoping. So I, I want this podcast to contribute to your vision and mission. Um, and that really is what I'm after. So Eleanor, thank you so, so much